Hey everyone, I just want to apologize ahead of time. I recorded this on Zoom and some of the audio isn't perfect, but uh, it's just a patchy a couple times throughout, so bear with me with that. Otherwise, I thought it was a pretty good episode, so without further ado, I hope you enjoy. Welcome to the Elevation Podcast. This podcast seeks to explore everything from mental, physical, and spiritual well-being. We aim to help you increase your performance, recovery, and optimization with your mind and body. Get ready to get elevated. episode of the Elevation Pod- Podcast. With me today is Eric Richard. Um, Eric has a long list of qualifications, including uh, he completed his undergraduate degree uh, in kinesiology. He's a CSEP certified personal trainer. He's a certified exercise physiologist with CSEP. He's a certified strength and conditioning specialist, and he's currently a master's candidate in uh, biomechanics. Um, in addition to all of that, Eric currently works as the head of strength and conditioning with St. Mary's uh, University, and he programs, plans, and coaches a total of eight varsity sports teams. Over the past semester in uh, university, I had the pleasure of working with Eric uh, as an intern uh, with the football team there. So without further ado, Eric, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me on. My pleasure. Um, so we can just kind of dive into some stuff here. Um, I thought we would start with just in general periodization. Um, so you just want to like kind of break that down. What does periodization mean? And like, how would you, uh, how, what would your process be for applying that to an athlete? Uh, yeah. Periodization. It's just, it's our, it's essentially the method of planning training over a long period of time, but that can look like anything from, you know, planning for a week, a month, three months, a year, uh, typically with varsity athletes, we're looking at sort of a one to four year plan. What's the first year look like? And then what does each following year look like after over the course of what would be a typical four year program um, athlete? Some of them stay for five years and that changes a little bit, um, but it's kind of case by case once they get to that age and age. Um, so basically what we do is we look at the, the year, the, the saving grace of university sport is every year is pretty much the same, give or take a few weekends. Um, you might have a game that's scheduled a week earlier the next year than it was the year before. Um, so we look at the year ahead and then plan based on when the competition periods are and then when we have free time to maybe push the athletes a little bit harder. So uh, typically they're categorized in sports the fall sports are usually done by november um, 
if they don't make playoffs and if they do make it all the way through playoffs, it could go all the way to the end of November. Um, so you're planning for peaking going into training camps for the most part. So that looks like somewhere between mid to late August for most of your fall sports. And then your, your winter sports sort of get into gear early September. And by the time you hit the end of September, they're in competition too. The only difference is with the winter sports, they're going to be playing a lot longer where you see them playing well into um, end of February or March sometime. So when we look at the athletes, we have them in our, in our space and in our facility pretty much from whenever they show up in August for the training camps until they hit exams in, in April the following year. So that's really only a few months to have them in person. So uh, it changes the plan a little bit, but everybody's in off season for sure from April until their August training camps. Um, so it's basically just looking at that template and then trying to to different practices to different teams based on their sport and their needs. And then every year sort of reevaluate, okay, did we get the most that we could out of the way that we planned for this year? Um, and like I said, because every year is similar, there's, there's room to sort of um, look at a pattern a year and sort of predict what you think is going to happen based on the schedule because for example football they're always going to have right now the way it's set up eight games and a bye week like no matter what that's the way the schedule is going to be you just don't know when the bye week is until the schedule is released so for example two weeks ago or maybe a week and a half ago now schedules for the varsity teams were released for their upcoming seasons if COVID-19 you know, doesn't pan out beyond or going into our, our upcoming seasons. Um, so we get to plot in all those competition dates now. We're having a more clear picture of what does it look like when we transition into season based on, okay, what, what, what people are we playing first? What's our first game? Training camp going to look now based on that first game. <clears throat> and then how do we adjust once we hit the bye week? So, Right now, I think it's looking like our bye week falls in a really good spot for football, for example. So we have our, our off-season training, which is usually sort of January till April. Typically, we would have had April testing. We got shut down because of the coronavirus pandemic. So we missed that testing point, but now we're on to our second half of the off-season, um, which, again, is modified and tweaked because not everybody has access to gym equipment. So a traditional off-season program isn't really... Uh, possible for everybody. We have a few people that are doing what we would have been able to do had everyone had access to equipment because some people are fortunate to have equipment at home. Um, but for the most part, we're trying to and experiment with things that we can do with people at home and, and hope for the best going into this new year. Um, once we hit training camp, no matter what, we're going to have to take a different approach compared to most years. Most years, it's about uh, trying to control the training load they, the athletes have on them, especially in terms of sprinting and just overall workload. Um, this year is going to be interesting because we there's no guarantees based on everyone's constraints that we're going everybody coming in at where they should normally come at. I expect that people, if we end up coming back to training camp, come lower in terms of performance. Um, especially the younger athletes that haven't had enough time to sort of figure out how to train independently. Um, whereas some of our older athletes, I'm not worried about at all. Um, then we'll hit our season and then, you know, whenever we get our bye week, that's almost two straight weeks between games. So that's another little 
season we've been calling them where we get to plan a little bit of a push to see if we can get a little more out of the athletes focus on recovery uh, but maybe regain any strength last year we managed to everyone's strength quite a bit in our bye week and that helped us a lot in terms of feeling physically ready to go towards the last half of the season um, so we almost had like a going into season and then like a mini peak just before the end of the season which was really sweet to see it doesn't happen that often so if you manage to do it it's awesome. um you know and then there's there's our that that sort of mirrors like the schedules that you can see soccer is a little more intensive they go in they have a ton of games usually in in september or october and it's just like it's a crazy schedule i think they have one of the toughest schedules this last year for our team was really tough they it seemed like they had two to three games and that it was just almost unfair is what the schedule felt like but you know you just based on that rugby's pretty quick they only have six games um and some of the games are like three in the span of eight days so the season just like goes by super quickly yeah and that's um, a rough sport yeah no it's brutal like to have um, that many games of rugby like that close beats the shit out of you yeah and there's just no best way to truly come out of that feeling a hundred percent you know what i mean you just try and hang on to whatever you can but yeah you're gonna get burnt out no matter what so how we mitigate that is important um yeah and we'll get into uh like recovery and stuff too here in a minute um one thing about okay the audio is choppy there for a sec um so overall, like periodization, you said planning over like the long term. Um, I think if I turn that down, uh, and especially for sports, like I know because you use Team Builder for all the athletes, so they plug. So what Team Builder is, maybe once I'm done, you can just give a maybe a better overview of it because you've obviously used it a lot more. But they're inputting a bunch of information about like the recovery, how they're feeling. Um, all of their lifts go in there, um, and you can kind of you can kind of map progress and recovery, and you can also mm -hmm. compare to that when in the year was that. So, the off season, in season, um, and then in season usually you see recovery starting to get shitty because you can't make it's hard to make adaptation happen when you're doing all of this stuff at once. So, I think you kind of mentioned it there, like when they're in season, it's a lot of recovery focus and like preserving as much strength as possible. Whereas when they kind of get out of season, you can focus more on like building their performance and like their strength back up. So maybe yeah. just do like a quick, like in your experience using that type of software, um, how valuable is that as a, a strength coach? Uh, it's super valuable. I've used a few other things and I find that the simplicity of team builder is on so far um the ease in which you can throw things into the program and modify them for the end user sort of experience is phenomenal um so uh like you said you track every lift wrap every kind of weight that they input uh obviously as part is they have to be inputting things to be able to use the information um when we're there in person you know our completion rates like 90 something percent and then whenever one's off on their own we're looking at 20 percent and people just stop using the the app as religiously if there's not that the check and balance at least for some of the teams some of the teams are killing it um but what we throw in there is subjective measurements of, of readiness or wellness 
Um, so what we've been able to do is look at that information, track our, our predicted maxes or our, our sort of strength monitoring, um, our wellness and readiness monitoring, and then overlay it onto the same timeline. And what we were able to show with the teams is almost predictive points of, okay, this metric took a dive, and then this was our end result almost every time it took a dive. Um, so, for example, one of the sports, there was one team in particular that they were they were so focused on playing that they just would sort of like get way too tough to play that team and, and, and cut themselves short when the game actually happened both times. But every single metric we could possibly look at also took a dive right within a week before that game. So it was just showing that whatever the coaches and the, and the overall picture of what we were doing to those athletes wasn't setting them up for success. If anything, it was driving down in the dirt. Now on the flip side, in terms of strength, we did or where we tried to bring it up into those games. It just seemed like whatever worked out, people got a little gun ho. Physically we were ready, but mentally the team seemed to die. Um, started to notice this trend across everybody. We could almost see the same pattern every time they were going into certain key events or or types of game or however they put their own their own uh, importance on something. Right on. Um, kind of speaking of like uh, improving, you know, you're trying to improve someone's strength. You're trying to improve sort of one system uh, that applies to their sport. That's uh, ad advantageous to them. So just in terms of like training, like it's important to select uh, one to two main goals or maybe you have a certain number of like specific things you focus on when you're programming but you can't do everything at once that's like a big part of periodization is to focus on this thing and then transition into a focus on this thing so maybe you do like a strength phase and then the next phase you're doing a bit more like speed or power work um or depending on like you know the athlete maybe you're you're working on a certain energy system like conditioning them uh, their cardiovascular system or their ability, uh, their like oxidative uh, energy system. Um, I know for me, like picking one thing's really hard. I like to, I always want to be working on everything. I have trouble mm -hmm. sort of dialing it in. Um, maybe just go over like how you decide for like what things you take into consideration for the order you're programming something. So say like in the off season, you have you know, in an ideal situation, they can probably make most of the progress there in terms of their lifts and like their strength and their numbers going up. Whereas during the season, it's more recovery focused. Like how do you choose when to put a certain type of training in a program? Yeah. Um, I think it's like the simplest example that you can use is football. Uh, and it gets more complicated when you look at sort of the training age of the athlete, whether they're a first or a fourth year athlete. But typically season, because of the predictable schedule, it's really easy to adopt a linear periodization method where you start, you know, building your muscle and your general work capacity and work your way up to peak for speed and power going into season. Um, that's really easy to do. But once you hit season, uh, typically I find that I, I end up doing more of an undulating periodization method where we're kind of changing week to week or even day to day. We can have a daily undulating method where 
especially for older guys, you'll have like the first day, we'll have like quote unquote max. They're not actually maxing out at 100% effort at one rep, but we're definitely getting a max at you know 70% where they do 70% for as many reps they can to show us predictive strength at that at that moment. Doesn't burn them out. Um, you know, we might even change up the exercise to reduce the stress and fatigue where we'll go instead of just doing a squat, we'll do a box squat, take off some of the pressure down at the bottom so that it, it, it changes the exercise quite a bit. And the, the effects of doing even just that simple change are profound. Guys keep the same weight or more on the bar and feel way better coming out of it and don't have the same stressor because they're getting all kinds of stress, especially around the hips and the back and stuff from contact and, and practice. Um, so everything kind of has a place. Um, typically with a younger athlete, regardless of what time of the year it is, and depending on the sport, if they're not really being utilized in their competition environment as much, it's because they're not there yet to be utilized. So that gives us a better, uh, a better ability to just, you know, linearly periodize for those guys or girls. Like you just, you start with the found, you need to build the foundation no matter what. So if they're not playing, well, it's time to build the foundation. Football has a group of that, where some of the guys don't touch the field. So we just treat it like when they come in and on training camp stuff, their off-season starts. You want to try and get them up as much as you can by January. If you want all the actual strong guys been around for a few years, you know, there's there's a bit more of a level playing ground to try and bring them up and make them more competitive that way. Um, but on the flip side, when you look at like older guys, almost no matter what, through uh, through the year. The typical plan that you would have for, say, younger athlete doesn't really apply to them anymore. A lot of them have hit their their sort of strength that they're going to have, or might not get much more as they continue to get older. Um, so you work on expressing different capacities. So you'll have sort of different your weeks spread out a little bit differently. Um, instead of having you know a primary focus for three to four weeks, you might have a daily theme that you work on, and every week is. You know, you'll still have a, a two to four week sort of here's a, a typical goal of this phase, but then you'll have different aspects of your linear periodization spread throughout each week. So you'll have like your your strength day, your work capacity day, your speed and power day, a sprint two two sprinting days typically. Like it's quite spread out. Instead of Whereas, like instead of like a few week block of just focusing on speed, you'll do it yeah, kind of well, daily. So like you'll definitely have with like first year guys okay these next four weeks you're doing versions of a workout two times per week with slight variation and boredom but they just need the volume and repetition to grow that's usually the biggest part or you know more muscle is never necessarily bad <laughs> like you just need those guys to get bigger and you try and you know the same approach for most of the athletes a lot of the athletes come in when they're they're sometimes 17 but like 18 19 not having a big enough engine to perform so we need to build up that engine as much as we can whereas older athletes like they're already their engines built they're ready to go we're just trying to make sure that we the amount of mileage that's left in the in the engine yeah and what was that last part you just said with older athletes like their engines already built you know yeah. what I mean? For the most part, they spent years trying to, to develop their performance. So we're just trying to maximize the amount of mileage they have left, whether right. it's a year or so. Yeah. Um, how about like, so when you don't have an athlete, let's say you take someone who's 
you know, they have more of like maybe two main goals as a purely a lifter. Like, you know, they're maybe they're not strictly a power lifter or a bodybuilder, but they're someone who goes to the gym a lot and they can focus on hypertrophy and strength training. Like there you have more specific things that you can kind of target directly and you don't have to, you know, you don't have all these variables of going in the season and like, you know, an off season where you can maximize things. It's sort of all of the time they're almost at like an optimal point for adaptation and growth. Um, so say you had someone coming to you and they were just like, I want to get as strong as possible. How would you periodize strictly a strength schedule? Yeah. I mean, I mean, there's obviously yeah, think, a ton of different approaches you could take, but maybe just like the yeah. general sort of way I, you would it's think. Definitely, it's definitely case by case. There's a lot of things in the toolkit that you can use. Um, but I mean, if I encountered an athlete that like was just training to train, uh, one of the first things that I try and find out is why the hell are you training? I mean, what is the goal? Why? Because people train to train, sure, but everybody has a reason why they're sticking to something. Because you know, repetitively causing stress and damage to your body is, <laughs> Dave. You don't have a goal. Is <laughs> counterintuitive to your your natural desire for homeostasis. Um, but yeah, I mean, if we encounter somebody, try and figure out what their goal is and then plan based on that. You have to build a timeline and create artificial competition for dates. So, you know, we do this a lot with people who want to lose weight. It's like, if I want to lose 60 pounds, okay, well, uh, when is a realistic time to lose 60 pounds by? And then you kind of work backwards from that. You always need that endpoint to work backwards from. Now, some people do just generally plan, but you're looking at um, everyone almost inherently and unintentionally does like a West Side method where every week or two weeks they're changing up things. You know what I mean? But always striving for the max at what they're doing, but every yeah. few weeks it's a little bit different. Everybody naturally does that when you train on your own with no specific like competition goal or whatever. Um, and it's the only way sane, I find. It's really hard, like formerly, a player to then not playing and trying to keep up training you got real hard to train with intent because i don't need to slap around giant men anymore you know what i mean like i just yeah. now i just live in this big body like what do you do okay well you gotta spice it up a little bit fun yeah um so maybe like sorry you cut out a couple times there but i think in general you were saying like the main thing is you know, establish a goal, like what are you trying to accomplish? And if I think a good point to maybe bring up in terms of why do people want to get super strong just for the sake of getting super strong, um, probably just goes to higher level, like motivations rather than like, like for a football player, it's very extrinsic motivation. Like they're, they want to get strong to perform well in this other thing. Whereas maybe someone who purely just loves lifting heavy weight, um, it's intrinsic. It's it's just within they enjoy doing it, so they want to keep getting stronger. And maybe there's there's a social component to it. Um, but something you pointed out, like the wear and tear on your joints and stuff. There's there's a point where you're getting so strong that 
it's going to be hard on your joints. Like if you're getting like a, you know, 600 pound squat and your frame wasn't naturally made to handle 600 pound squat, that's going to wear you down. Um, but I think, uh, just in general, like, I feel, I'm just going to say what I think you were saying was start with an angle, like pick a time. What do you want this goal for and work back with it? So, yeah, you know, how do you get here by this point and then maybe get a general outline for that. And with maybe a, like with a specific thing like strength, you can be very specific to that goal, yeah. which in a sense is in theory, it seems easier, but I almost think it's harder to do that because when it's an arbitrary goal, you're like, okay, I want to have this by this. And then in two weeks, your mindset might change. You might be like, Oh, but getting bigger would be pretty sweet. <laughs> or, you know, yeah, I so. would like to get a little bit more lean and you, it's very, it's a lot harder when there's not an external thing being like, get to here by this point, because if you don't, the guy on the other team's going to run you down or the other, they're going to yeah. lay you out. In, in terms of like personal non or intrinsic goals, like if you don't have a timeline built for yourself or a goal, it's really easy to lose discipline. Yeah. A plan, a plan, having a plan has with it a certain amount of discipline. You yeah. took the time to even just for the schedule sake of, out your training life. Yeah. Even just for the sake of doing like I followed uh cause like in general, I don't, I was going to compete this summer in uh, powerlifting meet, but obviously that's canceled now. But other than that, I hadn't had a, an extrinsic goal since well, specifically for the gym ever. I just, I love doing it. I love working out, like getting, building muscle, getting stronger. Like I, I played sports, a lot of sports when I was younger up until university. And then in university, I kind of was like, I really like doing this and sports keep injuring me. So for my longevity and overall like health and physique, I'll just focus on lifting. Um, but one program I followed was uh, fat training, Lane Norton's power hypertrophy adaptive training. And when I was actually sticking to that for the sake of sticking to it, like just discipline, like you were saying, the progress was so good. Like it was so much better. And it kind of just showed the experience because you can know something you can know, like, Oh, if I do this in theory, this is what should happen. But to actually experience following a plan strictly and being like, I'm going to follow this. I'm just going to shut my brain down and just do it. I know what to do. You go in, it's actually kind of easier because you go in, you got your, your phone or your paper or whatever with you. You're like this, 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 and this, these are, this is the RPE I'm trying to hit. This is the load I'm trying to hit. Like, you know what you're doing, which takes a big amount off your mental energy expenditure thinking. Oh, cause like when you're freestyling it, you're going and being like, Oh, what should I do next? Maybe I'll do this. It's really easy to be like, ah, oh, fuck it. I'll just do a bunch of curls and then get a good pump and get out of here. Like, I think what you said, yeah. having a plan is super important, even just for the sake of having that accountability outside, like outside of you, there's a thing that even if it's just a piece of paper that you wrote down, follow this plan for four weeks. Mm -hmm. For a lot of the time, I think that's enough for someone to follow it and be like, holy shit, like 
that past four weeks was better than the past three months of training just because you followed something. So yeah, I do think that's really important is get like actually getting something, even if it's not another person, something that even writing the act of writing something down makes people more likely to do it. So I think that's a good technique. You, you almost create a, a mirror version of yourself and that mirror version of yourself made the program. And if you don't yeah. fucking follow the program, then you're looking at yourself going, what the hell are you doing? Yeah. And even like maybe treating yourself like someone else, like, you know, what if this was your friend that, you know, really wanted to do something and you were helping them and you wrote them a program and you put the time in to do it for free for them. And then they're just like, ah, I don't know. I just stopped doing it. You'd be kind of pissed. You'd be like, dude, I put like five hours into programming for you. What the hell are you doing? If you look at yourself that way, you can be like, Oh shit. I would be pretty pissed at my buddy. If I, (laughs) you know, spent all that time doing that. And that, and that kind of is why we end up charging money for services. (laughs) At least you get paid. If someone doesn't follow it, that's completely them like yeah depending on the service obviously there's different levels to trying to get people motivated but you know one of the most frustrating things that i encounter is young varsity athletes and this is time this is like a time old problem they come in they're young they think they know what they're doing and they just refuse to follow the plan through even though you're you know you can literally look at the older guys who have been through the plan who are reaping the benefits who are saying just follow the friggin' plan but the young, you know, everybody just kind of has to learn. Sometimes you get a yeah. crash card, figure out, but I'm not crash card. Like, <laughs> yeah, there's nothing quite like actually experiencing something to understand it. Cause I think knowing yeah. and understanding are, are two different things. Like, you know, you can know smoking's bad for you, but you know, until you get cancer, you don't really have the, you don't, there's not the gravity of what that means. You know, you get cancer, like, holy shit, I could die from this. Whereas when you're smoking, oh, like, I know it's bad for me, but you don't understand, like, you don't. So I think the same thing applies for training. Like, oh, I know that if I follow this, it should work. But until you really, like, experience that and be like, holy shit, like, this works. Or holy shit, I'm a dumbass. This person's obviously smarter than me. There's a reason he's the head of programming and strength and conditioning like i think a lot of young people it's that classic adolescence feeling invincible i know everything type of syndrome yeah it's that and then it's paired with trust like when at first you know your athlete comes in it's first time they're away from home and now you're in charge of all hours of their week and they don't know who you are yet it some people just takes longer to buy into what you're doing. And sometimes you just don't hit the mark with some people. Um, one of my first, you know, profound with watching someone kind of say, go from the no to understand was. Or you just cut out there with. for a sec. Sorry. The, you started um, with one of the first times. Yeah. One of the first profound moments for me, seeing someone transition from sort of like knowing, understanding something when I worked with type two diabetes. She knew that exercise was good for her, but she just never committed to doing it until, you know, I kind of whooped her ass through a program for a few months. And then by the end of it, she was no longer diabetic. She was then pre-diabetic and then clear to the need medication anymore. And she truly understood, okay, man, had I done this, you know, 
where would I be right now? Yeah. And obviously you can't, you can't, you know, look back and dwell on the things you could have done, but it was just crazy to watch that kind of perspective. And I worked, yeah. I volunteered with a lot of at-risk populations early on and that kind of helped figure out how to motivate people because it's very different trying to motivate someone who's had, you know, heart surgery and they need to hit a certain fitness level to freaking stay alive versus an athlete who's for more or less perfectly healthy, who just doesn't want to, or doesn't yeah. feel like it. It's totally different, but the process can be the same. Yeah. I think, and the need, like the need aspect, I think is what makes shit happen. Like yeah. you need this, whether it's, you need it to live or you need it for your health or do you, you just have a feel to need it. Like an athlete who really identifies with their sport, like they need to perform well because that is who they are, which is a whole nother yeah. thing transitioning out of sport. That's a whole nother topic. But just in terms of that, that drive and that need to get something done. And then yeah, like understanding that. Um, also, I will point this out now. We can draw on a whiteboard here if you want to do any like, topics okay. coming out with graphs like because it is it will record it but what you're saying about diabetes maybe if anyone's listening to this who has diabetes and they're wondering maybe they haven't heard like you know exercise is good if you have diabetes but why is it good if you have diabetes it's because the the cells can translocate the transporter to like uptake glucose the glute 4 transporter independent of insulin so you're exercising, you're basically giving your body the ability to get the blood, you know, the glucose out of your blood, um, which is the problem with diabetes is they either can't produce insulin or the receptors on their cells are insulin resistant and it, they just don't respond to insulin. So maybe you can say a bit more about what that means. Yeah, well, no, it's just like exercise, like anything, you need sugar for fuel in your, right, your cellular level, your glucose. So using exercise, you essentially recondition your system to pull glucose out and use it for energy. So some people have harder times than when we're looking at type 1 diabetics, totally different story with type 2. I mean, if you are consistent enough, then quite a bit of people that I've seen anyways have profound changes just from being regularly active and and regularly active for some people that ended up changing like their their status significantly with diabetes was as simple as walking three 10 minute walks a day just just enough to trigger your body to say okay i need some sugar for the muscle and then you know months to months and then just progress from there um but yeah that's the simplicity of it yeah for sure um so here here's a good a good topic to cover uh, especially for gaining muscle but i think for any uh, form of adaptation um intensity versus volume like like obviously you need intensity you need the intensity to be there if you're if you're doing 10 reps of something you do 30 reps with nothing's gonna happen um but then volume especially for more advanced trainees like if their effective volume, minimum effective volume is like 15, 20 sets and they're doing seven sets with intensity, maybe not much will happen because they're advanced. Their body's like, Oh, we don't need to adapt to that. Cause we know we can handle it. The nervous system and the muscles yeah. can handle it. So like, what do you, th- what's your opinion when you're programming? I mean, 
maybe take the more ideal situation for if you had like someone with, you know, optimal recovery because a bunch of other stuff comes into play when they're during season, like the recovery is not going to be good enough to handle 20 sets a week, maybe. But if you have the situation where that's not a factor, like when you're programming volume and intensity, maybe like the off season, how are you looking at that? Yeah. I mean, the, the first factor that comes in is time. How much time is a person truly going to invest in a training session before they mentally check out? Um, especially in season. Um, typically what I'd like to look at is sort of, okay, say you, you warm up and you get some adrenaline going, how long until the adrenaline wears off? And typically everybody that works out a lot or works out for a long period of time knows once you hit that hour mark, hour and 10 minutes of like rigorously training, your body starts to go like, yeah, I'm pretty much done. Yeah. <laughs> Unless you do some like conditioning, you know what I mean? Or, or your bodybuilder and your intent, you're doing it on purpose. Like everybody has that sort of threshold. So like our, our sessions are never longer than 90 minutes, including the warm up and cool down. Um, it's the same for when, when the athletes go home in their off season. Um, we try and cut it down even shorter to get like the minimal effective dose of, of training. So kind of like what you're talking about with intensity versus volume, volume can be manipulated a few different ways. And the easiest one is, you know, more reps or more sets. But when you're looking at time, time always a factor because, you know, like I have to schedule my day, the athletes have classes, but we can't have them in there forever. Um, you can manipulate it a different way where maybe instead of having like the classic 10 by 10 approach, if you just linearly build up to 10 by 10, you know, research recently has shown that the same effective dose is five by 10. Yeah. You could probably get five sets done in an hour long training session of a primary exercise. Sets, it's like a special training session that they probably do on their own. Uh, if they really just want to see what they're made of mentally, but you know, five by 10 is good enough. So once you hit a certain set scheme, depending on what your what phase you're in, uh, the next one is just modifying on the bar. Is so what? if we don't have it, is modifying the weight on the bar. So oh, right, yeah. we don't have enough time to go up from say, say we hit four sets of eight in a certain phase. And looking at everything else we need to get done, we don't have enough time to add a fifth set. Then okay, why don't we why don't we maybe, you know, adjust the reps a little bit or add some more weight so you can work. But one of the things that we were a little unconventional with this last year, especially in season was giving guys, um, you know, sets that went into the 15 to 20 range, which a lot of people might go, Oh, like muscular endurance. Blah, blah. These guys are their strength and power on the field. It's like a one to three rep max every rep they do on the field in a practical setting. We don't need to replicate that in the weight room every day, especially season. But what they're not getting, muscular endurance stuff. They're not. They don't have enough endurance to last through a match. If they have that, so we can't leave that by the wayside. So we kind of change up that. Um, but intensity too. Yeah, volume. You just manipulate those variables based on circumstances. But intensity. Um, Intensity always seems to come from purpose of why we're doing what we're doing. Because you can have like something programmed to be, okay, this is going to be intense. But then if the person's not mentally bought into doing it, they're not going to give you the best effort they can. So 
but we're always trying to look for maximal intent behind the exercise. So we might manipulate the, the scheme around that. So one of the easy things that we've, we've done, like I, I mentioned earlier, actually, is transition to box squat, especially in season. You, it's way easier to get someone to, to perform an exercise of higher intensity when there is that break in the tension during movement. It feels a lot better. Um, or even cluster sets that we were getting towards in the, in the off season. Like, you know, you have to do this high intensity at low reps, but you get a little rest period before you have to do the next quick bout of it. People, as soon as they see like, you know, I think we had like 20 to 30 seconds on the, on the sheets for them. They were like, oh yeah, I can do that, no problem. Just because there's rest in there. So we manipulated that way, but now we're actually getting more. So for the cluster sets, I love cluster sets because you end up getting a little bit more volume at a higher intensity in the same or less time. Right. Um, so there's a lot there, but I think um, in terms of intensity, in terms of like, because I know for like for your when we were or when you were programming for the athletes, there they didn't have um, you didn't put RPEs for them, did you? For the sets? No, no. But so in we general in terms of like intensity, like RPE and RIR. Um, what would you typically like? Obviously, it's very dependent on what part of the the training they're at. Like if they're near a, a deload or or whatever, or like the season, but you know, would you say RPE eight would be like a standard sort of 7.5 or eight would be like a standard sort of minimum and then get close to 10. And then after a little bit of being at 10, kind of taper it back down to like seven or eight or what? Yeah. I mean, it, again, it depends. I, there's so many guys at one time. I find it's harder to one to keep track of that for the amount of guys and two to get make sure that everybody's being able to record that so what we aim for is like a session average number which is usually between six to eight um and then our second check is you know a percentage range we typically don't program exact percentages um but we don't have another sort of best to give them so we'll give them a percentage range based on the based on the goal and, and we always give guys a chance up a little bit heavier if they're feeling good and then a chance to go down if they're not feeling very good. Um, but it always falls within what our target is for that phase or that training session. Ideally, so like unfortunately some of the teams, some of the teams have better resources to get some equipment in the way. Now there's a bit of a disparity. So one of the teams has velocity trackers. Um, we do velocity-based trackers. We use that to program. So we'll have like a speed range they get to now pick a weight that falls within that speed range so they might do their first set be like wow the light i can go up as long as they're within the speed range so they keep going up set by set but as soon as they go out of that speed range they got to come back down okay that is where we're trying to get all varsity teams towards is, is first is velocity-based training because it and um velocity trackers like i'm assuming it's some sort of device what, how is that used and like and the purpose of that is to keep their speed a certain point. So I guess if they're doing like, would you use that on a squat and that would sort of give you a range for a certain power output they're getting. And you want to keep that power output at this point, which could somewhat predict an RPE of like 
what are they capable of doing for that weight and you keep it in a range. So if they go down to, you know, a certain below a certain speed, okay, we know that's too much. We know that's above their, their level of exertion they're capable of doing. Um, so like what, what's the device like, like what, how does that work? Yeah. So velocity boost tracking, there's tons of devices on the market right now. The ones we use are push bands. So they're, they're little, um, it's got a triaxial accelerometer and a gyroscope in it. It basically can measure movement in of itself. It's not hundred percent accurate because it doesn't have a zero point to reference from, but their algorithms have gotten better over the years. Um, you basically strap it on either the athlete or the bar itself. The bar mode's way better because then you don't have to hope for the best based on different metrics. Um, but you standardize the position on the bar, you place it on the bar, and then you're looking at, we usually look at the average velocity for bigger movements like squat, deadlift, power clean, even hand clean. You can pretty much do any of the movements with the bar. And then the athletes should just put profiles in their iPads we have set up linked to that, that push band. Um, that's in a group setting anyways and yeah so there's tons of research and literature out there right now on velocity based training for periodization where instead of periodizing based on percentages you look at velocity and there's some stuff in percentages to velocity also where certain velocities uh, predict what percentage of the max you're doing so you know if you're really slow velocity like a bench press max where you hit like between 0.15 and 0.2 meters per second that's probably truly a hundred percent. Whereas if someone says, yeah, that's my one rep max and they pushed, you know, 0.3 meters per second, you're like, yeah, they're either one, be more in the tank or two, you don't know how to express your maximal strength, which means it's in the tank, but that was a subjective 100% max effort. You just don't know how to tap into that yet. And that's where you see the younger to older athlete disparity of, knowing how your body operates and knowing how to use everything that your body has to output with which makes sense like if someone just thought of um using uh not even using an accelerometer but like just doing a rep quickly you get can you hear me yeah yeah doing a rep very quick if you can do a rep super quick it's probably not that heavy and vice versa if a rep is super slow to grind out and you barely get it up it's slow so it makes sense that applying an accelerometer would be indicative of what your one rep max would be it validates coaching your coaching eye so like typically a strength coach especially with time in the gym watching movements and having experienced them you know what a certain percent effort looks like you yeah. know what a one rep max looks like. You know what a five rep max looks like. You you know what I mean? And that's where you have to build that trust with the athletes, especially I notice more with female athletes where they don't believe you if you typically, if you tell them early on in their, their, their varsity career that they can do more. There's totally different, you know, things we could talk about in that aspect. But I see it a lot, especially with soccer athletes. They'll do, you know, we'll do like five rep, five to 10 rep next half hour deadlift testing and you'll see a girl slap on like 275 pounds do it for 10 really fast and be like no i'm done that's it that's the most i can do and you're looking at the movement and if we have the, the chance to have tracking on it you're like no you literally are not maxed out 
especially yeah. when the coaches are in there, the coaches who, you know, don't necessarily have all the experience in weight room are still also like, no, there's definitely more in the tank. Yeah. Then you'll keep going. Some of these athletes, yeah, and then some of these athletes will end up doing 100 pounds more, and then they'll be like, oh, well, now my back hurts. And it's like, okay, well, you experienced expressing max strength for the first time, so no no yeah. surprise there. But they just don't know. Yeah. Um, so we're trying to work towards um, where we have a available for all of our training sessions for all the athletes because it it validates our coaching eye and then it allows us to to you know objectively look at training reps and sets having to sort of remember what i just looked at or not see what someone did someone could write down you know they did the weight but did they do it at a sufficient quality so if we get to a point where we can do that we can look at all the data and say okay yeah this training session overall for all the athletes objectively was good because you know, our velocity ranges were in a certain range that we were charging. Right on. All right. And we're back. We just took a quick break there. Um, so we just finished off with accelerometers and I think we kind of covered that pretty good, especially with, you know, some people's perceived effort is not their actual maximal effort. Uh, one thing before we move on, I just want to note about like the volume thing we we're talking about in case anyone's wondering and, um, you can maybe give your quick opinion on this. It's pretty general. It's just diminishing return. Like you're going to get a point where you're going to be doing as much volume as you can recover from. So your maximal recoverable volume after which you're going to be overtraining or at least overreaching in the short term. Um, and if you keep doing that volume that you can't recover from, you're going to, eventually you're probably going to overtrain, um, which is more a prac, uh, maybe more, it doesn't apply to a lot of people. Like a lot of people need to push themselves harder, but I think you get that like few percent of like, you know, very extreme lifters who like, maybe they're constantly trying to do more volume. So there is that sort of trade-off, like initial increases in volume will be very beneficial. You'll get to a point where little bit more return and then you'll get to a point where you're just not recovering properly yeah you you can like you can pretty much graph it like newbie gains shoots up and then get older it starts to level off like you if you if the, if humans could truly linearly train then you know it'd be like all right today i'm doing 100 sets of 10 a couple of years into my training nobody's going to do 100 sets of 10, right like yeah. that's not how the body works and the body can respond from from minimal sort of doses of training if it's smart just you know little progressive increases and that's where weight comes in like you can end up you know, say we're looking at like a 10 at 70 percent your 70 percent is going to change over time sorry so what was that last part about your so say you're doing like a four by ten at 70 percent yeah your 70 percent max changes as you get stronger so your volume does change as you continue to get stronger, but eventually there is strength which most people don't actually find or hit, right? That's why when you look at like strongest guys in the world, like strong men, they're the only people in the world truly, truly trying to find how strong they can be genetically and physically. Yeah. Nobody else is ever truly maxing out unless you are trying to do the crazy stuff that they're doing. Yeah. Um, there are, you know, there are lots of people out there doing it and like Olympic lifters, like competitive weight lifters yeah. for sure, power lifters, but like 
outside of that, most people, most athletes are never going to find their 100% max strength, yeah. their true absolute cap. It's just not going to happen for most people. And it's, it's not necessary. So like a, a very practical example for skating athletes, like hockey players in particular, um, trap bar deadlifts has been shown to be very, uh, very strong correlation to the skating performance and skating speed, typically. Um, and what you find is that once, at least from our guys in the last few years, having a lot of data on that now, once a guy can lift over 500 pounds in a trap bar for reps, the returns are diminished significantly. More pounds you add after 500 pounds, less effect it seems to have. But every pound before 500 pounds seems to have a dramatic effect on their performance. That'd be like a much so, steeper. Yes. Curve. Yeah. It, it, you can, I forget what they call, but you literally just, it looks like a boomerang basically going, you know, up really fast and then it levels off as you get old. Kind of Is it a parabola? Like, parabola? No, no, no. It's just like literally that. Oh, okay. Yeah, I just admit just diminishing return curve. I don't know. There might be a more <laughs> specific name for it. Um, sweet. Let's, uh, so I think maybe, oops, like warm ups and then cool downs and maybe we, and then recovery, like we can start with warm ups um, and kind of just like, you know, parasympathetic, sympathetic, like, when you're training, you want to be in a sympathetic state. Like that's sort of what's going to be happening. You, your body's getting ready to do work. It's getting fight or flight sympathetic. You're, you're being able to do what you're trying to do. And then, you know, parasympathetic rest and digest. You want to get that cortisol back down. You want to get in a state where your body can now recover and adapt from that training session. Um, so we'll start with, warm-ups and you know sort of getting the body ready um you just want to like break down ramp and like because i think that's a really even if you're not an athlete like if you're going into train and maybe especially if you're going into train heavy and like you have a, a good purpose for that i think ramp is a really good format to apply to your warm-up because some people just you know they go on the treadmill for 10 minutes they do a couple arm swings and <laughs> they jump into their sets so maybe just yeah go over ramp for sure um so we've set it up that typically it's raise activate mobilize potentiate um our our mobilize section is mobilize slash move where we do some of our dynamic movements um but your raise part of trying to get your heart rate up blood pumping through the body so that you're saturating your tissue with blood and you know you're getting your your initial sympathetic drive up with your heart um initial hormone release all the good stuff for for getting your body ready get your temperature up um, but that alone isn't enough because there's still so many aspects to your physiology. So the next part is activate. That's where we're trying to target specific muscles for the training session. Typically on bigger groups, there's like they need for a training session. You kind of whittle it down to a few key things, you know, especially like glutes, like the glutes and your core needs to be turned on before you go lift some heavy weights because those are key drivers and stabilizers and for your movement. That's a big one, pro, like problem area for me is like I really need to make sure those are ready to go and those are activated because just low back, consistent low back problems, especially from my glutes and like just yeah. core in general. Yeah. The, uh, so like I guess kind of speaking to that, like 
you can tell an athlete that's going to have a hard time when doing like a front flank type priming exercise is a really hard thing to do. Like your your typical athlete should be able to hopefully in the standard we try and set is like at least one to two minutes of plank, like it's nothing. No matter what sport they play. That's a compound exercise in of itself. Like you need to use your whole body to stay rigid and straight against gravity with the longest lever you could possibly physically have. Um, so just little things like that. The, uh, the mobilizing motion is where we start to work on specific joints and limbs that we need to move well. So ankle mobility, that's like a key for most of the athletes, especially when you're like sitting around all day some people don't realize but like the active especially for student, students and office workers like sitting down all day your ankle becomes stiff in a specific position which is not an ideal position yeah. where you along see with uh, along with hamstrings and hip flexors yes yeah yeah no it's it's a whole chain issue like yeah. you start with the ankles because your foot's in a static position all day um and then like your hamstrings are less of a less of an issue where you know the sensation of needing to stretch and strengthen are almost the same so like classic example is people with tight hamstrings quote unquote or tight neck they say oh i need to stretch those two parts of my body out when in reality you need to add muscle tone to it you need to strengthen it a little bit more so like um sitting down all day your hamstring is lengthened out quite a bit but people then go, oh, I need to stretch. And it's like, why would you stretch an already stretched out muscle further? Whereas the hip flexor, the hip flexor is, you know, shortened and gets tight in a shortened position all day. And you get your, your, pel your pelvic tilt from all this craziness. That's a lower cross syndrome, upper cross syndrome. Um, you're trying to get some of these muscles turned on, you know, the activate part is where we typically target on that. This is some hamstring bridges that we use. Uh, I have a hamstring bridge progression system that I try and use the athletes and um, yeah you try for all that stuff turn the muscles on that are typically turned off the activate part and when you hit the mobilized part you're trying to move the muscles that should be moving um, especially the shoulders and the hips those are the two biggest key ones we do sometimes we have time to throw in the neck because people's heads are always kind of tilted down like this all day um, and then some dynamic movement, like actually finding the end range of movements for some simple exercises, like a forward lunge, a lateral lunge, uh, you know, quad reach when we have time. I love the down dog series because some of the hip movement that you get out of there is just, it really pushes your hips to stretch more than you would if you didn't yeah. do it. Yeah, I've been um, throwing those ones in lately. Yeah. And then uh, our potentiate part is more for your, your stretch or, you know, your elasticity component, your bones, your ligaments. Um, your nervous system if we have time depending on the phase like we'll throw some plyometrics in there quick contacts work on your your ground contact time and reactivity and then sprinting there's always some sort of a sprinting component that builds up you know just short distance something to get the nervous system trying to fire as much as it can maximally um, and the goal of a good warm-up is so that your body has now experienced the things that you need that might be a little bit more than what you'll need in the weight room yeah so like the down dog to spider-man rotation you're probably not going to do that movement in the weight room in any resisted setting but now your body is okay that felt pretty good i'm open where if something happened where you needed to open up it's now able to 
Yeah. You see it so, all the time. So you, just, you said there, um, the Don Dog to Spider-Man, you just cut out a bit. But for people listening, that's like you go to Don Dog position like you would in yoga, the classic Don Dog. And then you come forward, you bring your, your leg up. It's kind of hard to describe over audio, but like almost like you're in a very low warrior pose. And then usually it goes with rotation. So you, you rotate with your arm up towards the leg that's in front of you. So maybe yeah. I, maybe you can visualize what that is. Maybe. Oh yeah, pretty much. It's like, if you're, if your hands are down, it's almost like, like the down dog part, it's like being in a plank and then you try and step beside your hand and then you reach your hand for the sky on the same side. And then that gets you, that gets your hip and your, your body in a position that will be more extreme than any, it's going to be more of a stretch than a, a squat will. So by the time yeah. you get into the weight room, your body has sort of opened up to that capacity. So now when you're yeah. doing a squat, you're not going to strain a muscle because it's not ready for it. Tight things under load do not perform well right? Like imagine a frozen rubber band and you try and pull on it, it's going to snap. But if you have a warm rubber band that's gone through some movement range, it's less likely to cave under tension. Yeah. And that um, kind of could bring us to like static versus dynamic stretching before, because you don't want to be yeah, static. Like, you don't want to lengthen that muscle too much to the point where the amount of force and tension it can produce is compromised. So isn't uh, dynamic stretching you know, sort of better yeah. taking it through a, a movement range while you stretch it. Yeah. Dynamic pre I'm, I'm dynamic before camp, like static can go after and we usually don't program in static stretching because uh, typically the guys need to do it on their own. You know, we're not there to hang out and do a yoga session or anything. <laughs> we have specific goals in mind. Yeah. We're there to advise if they have, you know, I need to stretch this. How do I do that? But we try and cover most of that as we go through and, and, Typically, with the way that we set up our program, there's no real need to do an excessive amount of static stretching work afterwards because typically the problem with most of our athletes isn't that they're, they're not flexible in some spots. It's that they're weak where they need to be strong and they're really strong and tight where they shouldn't be. Yeah. Um, yeah, because if you're, if you're weak in, in one area then your body might go into a position to compromise for that or a muscle group that shouldn't take over might be taking over. And then, then two parts might be compromised. Like say for me, like my glutes are weak. I don't know if this is exactly what's going on with my low back problems, but if your glutes are weak, you're not keeping the tightness in the right spot. So maybe now your low backs being put excessive strain. Yeah, typically what you're seeing is when your glutes are weak and your, your, your hip flexors are tight, it's pulling your pelvis into the anterior pelvic tilt. Okay, yeah. The increased tension of your hip flexors, which some of them insert on your low back, are now pulling your spine forward, and your glute isn't doing enough work to stabilize the back of your So you're essentially increasing you're getting into that, your low back. That rounded position, which is not... Yeah. It's, it's like the, the typical athlete that you see with like an extreme lordosis in their low back because of the way that their hips start to tilt forward and you see their back curve. A spine in the low back is not designed to be excessively curved. There's an optimal curve. Yeah. But when those muscles are out of balance, it, it goes beyond the optimal curve and then the spine isn't performing its load, to, its load as properly as it should where load's trying to go up and down. Now it's yeah. going down. 
soon as you get the low doses, it pushes forward the, or back. It's going through the instead of going directly straight down through the spine where the load's supposed to be supported, you kind of yeah. it's kind of almost promoting even further that curve because it would yeah, be it'll leveled. it'll dip out and press. So that's when you see people with what? herniated discs so right, once you have yeah. like excessive spine position that shouldn't be where it is plus an increase of force through there that's typically when you see people with disc problems and that's that's from my like my neck had that issue from contact sports um my mother's had a few discs fused in her low back and that's just what happens over time but like if you don't correct those imbalances things can happen and I, it's not to scare anyone like it takes a while or a high amount of force for it to happen but those are like things that you can fix with athletes. It's like yeah. making them not walk around like they look like a monkey. <laughs> just be, yeah, like just even being aware of that, like maybe someone just heard this and they're like, oh shit, maybe I'm having that, you know, rounding issue. And boom, they can go maybe see a physio or they can even just look up some basic things to to correct that and implement it in like a warm up or an extra set here and there and you're probably going to do some some good damage control just by doing that so yeah I, what sort of i guess it would depend on if it's anterior or posterior pelvic tilt um is there any like thing that comes to mind like for each one of those in terms of like a good exercise just for stability like a plank obviously would probably help yeah like if i if i I had to really limit myself when I was limited time to try and help somebody out. I would a plank and a glute raise. Plank and glute raise. Okay. Yeah. Because like the front of your, your hips, the goal of a hip flexor is to flex the hips, not as the front of your, your core. So that's kind of what ends up happening is you then rely on that, that tension down there to keep you upright because you're all in a whack. But as soon as you add muscle tone and tension to your, your actual core musculature, it takes over. Yeah. And you start to notice that your hips start to feel a lot better, especially if you get the glutes working. And that's that's typically that kind of cross work. It's like your your abdomen and then your glutes need strength work. And then your your hip flexor and maybe your your low back kind of thing need a little bit more of a stretch out. But I typically, you know, we aim for the strength because typically it's strength that people need for you know their issues, their imbalances. Yeah, for sure. Um, sweet. I think that was good. I'll just go over a quick um, summary of the warm up like components, and then we can get into like uh, maybe cool down and recovery. So ramp is the warm up sort of acronym. It's raise, which means you know get your heart rate up, get your body temperature up, get like sort of that, that sympathetic response started. Like you know you're getting ready for physical activity. Then activate. So get the muscles firing off that you need to get firing off and then mobilize. So go through some range of motions for maybe specifically that session. And what I usually do is I just have sort of a, a go-to set that I kind of, I go through, I go, do a goblet squat hip drill. So just opening my hips up a lot, like in a more extreme position than I will be squatting with. So when I go to squat, it just feels very smooth. Um, and then potentiates like getting those neurons firing off, like getting the nervous system ready. And you, I think you said like just getting all of the connective tissue and stuff like good to go. 
Yeah. If it's, you basically, you break it down, you build up the Lego blocks, and then the last piece potentially is where you're doing most intense exercises. It's like a sprint. It can be anywhere up to 10 times the ground reaction force going through your body. You need to make sure that every part of your system is ready to handle that kind of force going through your body. So it's just like when people try and sprint without warming up, you're likely going to hurt yourself. Yeah. So don't, um, don't PMAR. It's in order yeah. for a reason. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So go through it, raise, activate, mobilize, and then potentially. Don't try to go full out sprints before you do all the other exactly. stuff. Um, so cool downs. I know like mainly we just did like breathing, crocodile breathing, and maybe like a light bike, like a light sort of biking or maybe light treadmill walk. Um, but just the importance of like getting in back to parasympathetic, like getting that cortisol sort of out and just you've done the work, your sympathetic nervous system's done its job and now you want to get sort of more parasympathetic. So yeah, just kind of, uh, yeah, just go over some the, of that stuff. The, the most important part too, like cortisol as a stress hormone, like that's going to happen no matter what. Then you're trying to get it down. Uh, from your training load over the, the sort of day following like it's going to be a process that happens in the immediate or acute term like uh, when you mentioned the bike that we use sometimes like the bike is typically in there to try and promote increase of flushing the system essentially yeah. a lot of people are you know clearing lactic acid that you primarily throw that in when there's two days where they'll have like a high intensity like mat drills they're, they're sort of morning workouts in the off season high high intensity high sprinting it's just like a high load but we still need to get a lift done so and for everyone listening mat drills are metabolic conditioning type yeah. stuff so just yeah. getting that aerobic capacity like yeah it's, it's an hour <laughs> and a half of suck um just cardio yeah cardio <laughs> so like in the in the second session we still need to build some strength they're gonna have some sit so we try and flush the system a little bit, clear up some metabolites and, and resaturate their muscles with oxygenated blood. The primary reason for that, try and you know, move some blood around. And then the breathing aspect is sort of the cornerstone too. And this is from watching teams of passive heart rate monitors. Their heart rates will drop back into a recovery zone after 10 intense breaths. So if you get your full deep breaths there's crocodile breathing or 99 breathing 99 breathing you're on your back pressing into the wall and trying to breathe uh crocodile breathing you're on your belly same concept but you're trying to breathe in maximally with your belly so think belly breathing yoga or whatever and then exhale completely using your core so instead of chest breathing which is very shallow and kind of stressed out breathing method or you're like minimal breathing yeah you try and use everything through your system all the way out. So when you're doing that, you're actually triggering parasympathetic response. Yeah. So after the 10 breaths, typically people, you know, in like a training session, someone's going to have a heart rate really properly between like a 120 to 150 resistance training. So you're trying to bring them back down to 100 or under 100 before you let them go. Because if their heart rate's jacked up while they go out through the rest of the day after that training session, they're just gonna be stressed out the whole time. Even even if they're not mentally stressed out, they're physically stressed. They're still and in then that stress. that feeds into being psychologically stressed too. Exactly. So the mind, mind body connection and stuff. 
Yeah, so just getting that breathing has a profound effect immediately in starting the recovery process. So physically, they start to feel better. Yeah. So that they have that spiral afterwards. Nice, yeah. And I, I just think, like, power of the breath is insanely, like, it's just insane. Like, people think it's, I don't know how much this stigma is very, is still out and about because I'm very much in, like, the health, well-being, performance like that's just kind of where my, I live most of the time. So for me, it's just like, Oh yeah, that's, it's proven it's science. But I think a lot of people think like meditation, breathing, just got to breathe, man. Like it's very hippy dippy, like not science-based, but that's not true at all. It's very science-based. So much research to show like even newer stuff with Wim Hof. Like I talk about him a lot on this pod, I think I've talked about him every episode so far, just at least once or <laughs> once or twice, but he's shown you can influence your physiology with your breathing and your mind, just with, like you were saying, the intent of breathing, like you can slow your heart rate down by doing very slow controlled breathing, like breathing out yeah. longer than you're breathing in, like four seconds in, four second hold, eight seconds out, like that will slow your heart rate down. That will get your cortisol and blood pressure back down it's not like it's not some mythical mumbo jumbo like this stuff's no. it's real and you can apply it to training you can also just apply it to psychological well-being and i think it's super important to know that because it's it's such a powerful tool you can apply for overall health but also recovery like get that yeah. heart rate back down after the training session get into parasympathetic like because cortisol yeah. is a catabolic uh, hormone right yeah yeah, you're not getting anything good by, by having high levels of cortisol. Yeah. Cool. Um, uh, how about like this is pretty much we're already talking about it, but other recovery methods. So I know like we had active recovery, passive recovery, and um, soft myofascial release. So that's like using a lacrosse ball, getting into the, the connective yeah, tissue so- stuff. Self, yeah, self-myofascial release. So it's just like any, think massage, but any way that you can either get a massage or perform a massage in yourself. Those ones are super easy. Um, that's more, at least from what I've been seeing in the last few years, that's more of a well-being standpoint where like if you feel good and you yeah. think you feel good, you'll probably feel good. Also um, the, the DOMS, right? Like delayed onset muscle soreness. Like if you yeah, feel super I mean, sore going into a training session, maybe in theory you're recovered your muscles have to feel but feeling super stiff and sore just you're not going to mentally think you can do what your body can do no and and that's where the warm-up comes into the warm-up you know the protocol we talked about is is going to help clear out some of that you know rusty feeling before you start the next training session that's that's the goal with the, the raise part at least um but yeah the smr stuff is good that's just like your foam rolling or lacrosse ball or whatever there's certain points that you can kind of target to get a little bit of release um you know points that i like to really focus on are the bottom of the feet and the glutes like with a lacrosse or like a golf ball type yeah just like something like you're if if people kind of prescribe to the the fascial chain theory where everything is connected through your fascia and, you know, it links up and connects and influences other sections of your body. Um, like stuff that you can do, like even just, you know, 
lacrosse ball on the bottom of your foot for a minute actually improves your range of motion to trying to touch the ground. It's great. Like it's crazy. Like it work. Um, how much it improves your performance. I still have to debate. I haven't found any direct link. Actually, it makes you better and move a little better. So there's some benefit I find that, especially when we use it with athletes that are, you know, we use it with our basketball athletes who are wearing high top shoes and their feet are always super stiff in the same position. Getting them out of their shoes and actually spending time with their own freaking feet that they need really time. I was, I was just going to mention, like, that kind of brings us to, like, barefoot training and actually getting those muscles in your feet to, to do what they're supposed to do. Because it, yeah. isn't it the most amount, like, of muscles in your body per area is in your feet? Uh, I, I wouldn't be able to confirm that for sure, yeah. but I know that your feet and your forearms and hands are definitely littered with tons of muscles. Yeah, because <laughs> there's just so many small bones and stuff, like the connective tissue and all yeah. that stuff in there. Is, yeah, Because yeah. they're like, a, they're very spring-loaded in a sense, right? Like, they're meant for running. Like, we evolved in bare feet. We didn't. <sighs> yeah, I mean, I'm not, I'm by no means an authority on feet, but from what I've seen and read, like, you know, humans evolve the way that you look at our foot. It evolved for running. Yeah. The ball of our foot. You know what I mean? If it was evolved for literally anything else, we would have a very different shaped foot. Um, there's still some grasping aspects to our foot, which helps profoundly with balance and our ankle stability and the way we can move with our feet. It just allows us to have this sort of full spectrum range of movement that's sort of unseen in yeah. some other creatures in terms of upright walking. Um, it has its drawbacks, but I mean, yeah, like I'm, a, I've always been huge for minimal shoes or, or potentially no shoes. Um, typically in like a training setting, what you would have seen with us shoes on most people, because it's a liability issue. Yeah. Uh, if someone drops something on their foot. Okay. Well, they have their shoes on. So like, is the foot, is the shoe really going to stop a 45 pound weight from crushing your toe? No, but at least I didn't tell them to remove the shoe and then they could blame me for saying that they took the shoes off. That's a different story entirely. Yeah. Um, but like my own, I use this pair of New Balance uh, Minimus training shoes for years. I got like three different pairs every time they, every time they buy a new pair. Um, they just had like minimal shoe to it and just like a support that grabbed your foot and then it was mostly your foot. You could actually like move your toes independently and grab the ground and do stuff. Yeah. I was and doing I, that. Wrestled. Sorry, go on. I, I wrestled in high school. Our very minimal in design. And I my sort of started my football career in university. I wore wrestling shoes all the way through training. And I just always, my feet were super strong. And every time I wore cleats, my feet would be really sore after because cleats just like strangle your foot. <laughs> yeah, they're super tight. Um, Chris Duffin, do you know who that yeah. is? Yeah. He's yeah. big on that. And I was doing somewhat not really related, but he's like big on that. Um, hack squats for a bit when I was doing like lags, but especially with hack squats, because in that position, I could get my feet far enough forward that I wouldn't need my heel raise to be stable. So I could go barefoot. Whereas when I do a normal squat, I'll probably put lifting shoes on just to, especially with like my back problems in my knees and stuff it's just more stable for me but when i was on hack squats i could go barefoot and i would really like grab into the base of the hack squat with my feet yeah. and 
you feel so much more stable and you can actually like just the control you feel going into that deep state with feet, like your feet actually involved is so much better than if you have like, especially a loose pair of like shoes on, like just a, you know, runners not tied up super well. Like they don't have a crazy stable base. Just going barefoot was so much better. Just felt better too. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, like our typical sort of cueing around the feet is, you know, turn your foot into a tripod, big toe, little toe, heel, make a cloth, grab the ground. Like that's as simple as we try and do it. And everyone's like, oh, okay, yeah, I can do that. They grab the ground and they feel yeah. more stable. That's the basic way to do it. But yeah, no, I'm a huge proponent for that. Everything we do when we're not sitting down is goes through. So yeah, we, we need to take care of them. For sure. Um, and then other recovery so like we you have active recovery and you have passive recovery um so actives like stretching jogging walking i think we kind of we touched on that for the most part uh but then passive recovery is more like your what you're putting in your body you know staying hydrated getting good nutrition protein of course um and then breathing we talked about breathing and then contrast showers um a lot of that I think straightforward, but maybe we can just talk about contrast showers, something people can do in the morning to kind of help yeah. that recovery. Yeah, it's uh I mean it's kind of like the same idea as a flush, but very like controlled. Your when your body makes contact with cold, your uh your blood, warm blood recedes to protect your organs. And then when you're exposed to heat, your blood moves to your skin to exhaust some heat because there's an optimal temperature your body's trying to stay at. So in the process of doing that, blood isn't just blood on its own moving, it's grabbing stuff through through your vessels and your cells, you know what I mean? As it's going through it, it's picking up metabolites, whatever. So by doing a contrast shower, you're almost like flushing your system out from your core to your periphery really quickly a few times over, you know, several cycles, whatever you set up for the minutes on and off. Um, but it just gives you a better sense of feeling. And I find that when people do it immediately after resistance training, they usually feel a lot better. Okay. And but, also, but because uh, the, oh, sorry, you cut out there. I thought you stopped. No, no worries. What did you hear last? Um, the general sense of like feeling better type of you said after yeah. work, you usually do it. Yeah. I, I typically like doing that. Like the tradition right now, some varsity teams and sport culture is to like ice bath after. Yeah. Where like I would much rather see us have a contrast bath or shower protocol in place. Yeah. Because the the benefits are just, you know, better. Whereas like ice baths, I'm thankful that I work with a therapy staff that we're all on the same page. Uh, There's enough literature showing that ice baths do a whole lot of nothing. And also, like, especially for for adaptation to put an yeah. ice bath right after a training session or a game is a little different because they just took a bunch of like abuse probably from getting hit and stuff. Yeah. But after a training session, you, I would even say put a sauna after a training session and get that yeah. blood flow increase. Cause you want that response to happen. You want that adaptation. Exactly. There. Yeah, totally. I mean, yeah, it's just like what we see even with icing, like the practices or therapy staff with icing has changed quite a bit where the guy who invented the ice protocol recanted 
a few years ago. He said, no, it wasn't based on science and it doesn't actually work. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. That's profound. I think that there are so many people still using ice as a primary method. For, like, is that the, is that the overall uh, rice method? Like rest, yes. yeah. rest, ice, compress, and elevate. Literally yeah, everything so, you can do to keep blood and like uh, inflammatory like factors away from the area that needs all that stuff. Yeah, exactly. So like, yeah, it's just like you said, when you need those, that stressor to create an adaptation, same thing when you have an acute injury, like a bruise, like you don't want to keep that there. You need it to move out of place. Otherwise it just hurts more. Like, so that, yeah, there's like that paradigm shift um contrast showers i think actually take care of some of that stuff from what i've seen like you see a little bit less inflammation where guys explain feeling like they're less inflamed after a training session or stiff and sore um movement also is a good medicine for that like when you do a training session and you just go sit and be a couch potato for a while and you're gonna get tight and stiff in those spots so like continuing to move is important too um yeah there's just stuff you can do with that yeah um, I think like, cause it's more, it's definitely more popular, like to take two extremes, a bodybuilder definitely wants to sauna after, if not just not get cold after, like yeah. to grow that muscle, you want that sort of, you want that inflammation, you want that blood. Back. But on the opposite side, an endurance athlete who's taking a lot of like impact and stuff and they're trying to train their you know, aerobic system or like their cardiovascular system for the most part. Um, they do, they typically do ice baths and stuff more because um, maybe they need to get out the next day and they need to recover quickly and like muscular adaptation isn't as important. What do you think about that? Well, I think at least from what I've been hearing, I got to listen to a really good podcast a few weeks ago that was kind of talking about this. It doesn't really matter what you're training for. It's it's the physiological response that's the same, regardless of whether you're, you know what I mean? Like if you're doing high contact running, the your bones don't need to get stronger. So why would you try and freeze that location of your body? You know what I mean? Like bone density changes. Obviously, you won't be able to influence it as much with your bone, but like your tissue still needs are just the same. So why prevent that recovery from happening, especially when running? in terms of volume, like contact volume, is higher than a resistance training session could ever be. You do not want to stop adaptation. So like there's a, for a while, there's a program up that you could find. It was like the older Navy SEAL uh, BUDS program is their running schedule. And they purposely threw in uh, a week of rest from running after the first two weeks of running. So you do two weeks of running and then take a week off from running on purpose and you're you know some people are like military guys not running what the fuck it's like yeah because it's rest they understand the process they literally have like trained physiologists like i find if some people want to know like okay how extreme recovery methods work or training practices work don't look at it's go look at the army those guys have figured out how to do the dumbest things to people and do it well <laughs> <laughs> yeah um also um it depends like in my podcast with uh, Dr. Cox, she's a, she's a naturopathic sports doctor, very evidence-based, like super smart. Um, but he says it's also like how, similar to how you're programming in, in 
on season versus an off season. Like if the athlete's main goal is to, you know, get back in the game or like go do another race or play another game, then yeah, maybe icing will get them to do that specific thing. But in an off season, let your body do what it needs to do yeah. to recover. So I think that's also a good totally. way to outline that is like, yeah, if you need to get back in the game and like that is your number one goal, even though it might not be the best thing for your body at the time, do yeah. that. If it, may, if it makes you feel good, then it makes you feel good. No one can deny that. And there's a bunch of stuff like aside from if you separate it far enough away from training or you separate it properly, cold exposure can be really good. It can help your immune mm -hmm. functioning, like mm -hmm. just in terms of developing pure resilience and grit. Like if you can withstand cold, that's going to translate over to a lot of other stuff. Like if you can stay in a cold bath for five minutes, work your way up, of course, like don't do anything dangerous, but Wim Hof, he does two hours world record longest ice, ice bath. Like he's, he's, gotten to the point where he can do that and he's influences physiology but just the mental aspect of like if you can be in a that cold of a thing with every cell in your body telling you don't do this and you can do that then when you have to go sit down and study for an hour that's not going to feel as difficult so it's all like balancing it like obviously there's a million variables but i think maybe that kind of outlines icing's not bad just use it effectively and use it for the yeah. right things and you know yeah. that, that goes with everything it's like it's a recipe use what you need for that for that meal don't get put chocolate icing in your pad thai you know <laughs> save it for the cake yeah. um sweet i think that was good on recovery what about i feel like we somewhat touched this but maybe just for like a more complete view at like the different energy systems and like what you would do for training each one so you have phosphocreatine which is like immediate um usage within like 10 seconds or whatever 30 seconds it's it's what's there right away it's like what you're using during a squat or something and then you have the anaerobic glycolysis so you it, it works without oxygen. You don't need oxygen to make that reaction happen. It produces energy from, from breaking down uh, glucose or glycogen into energy. And then there's aerobic uh, respi respiration. So that would be an oxidative system. Um, you can train each of these. And like you were saying, like metabolic conditioning, that's going to be mostly training their, their aerobic respiratory you know, oxidative system. Whereas if, if someone's trying to get really strong they're why waste their time training, you know, spending half their time training their oxidative systems, they probably want to train their foster creatine system the most. So how, like, what would you, what activities would you apply to training each of those? Yeah. Quickly before I dive into this, I was thinking as you were talking about that, I think one thing that we didn't touch on that's the most important, probably more than any other one, is sleep. Yes. I'm not a sleep expert, good point. but I think that's the most important thing is the amount of recovery that your body undergoes while you're sleeping, like significantly outmatches anything you can actively do to your body. Yeah. 
It's in, I just saw a new uh, Menno Henselman. Do you know Menno Henselman? He's more bodybuilding type stuff, but he's scientist researcher guy in the, the field of physiology and basically muscle growth. And there's a new study. I don't know if it was Norwegian or Swedish or something. I think it was, anyways, they did a study and they had two groups and the intervention between the two groups was sleep. So one group was getting adequate sleep. I don't remember, you know, what it, the specifics of any of it, but the sleep group was able to gain just as much muscle mass but reduce fat mass, whereas the less sleep group group gained more fat mass for the same amount of muscle mass. So it just yeah. kind of showed the physiological adaptations were way more efficient with sleep as a, a primary factor. And it makes sense because during sleep, your body's doing so many things, especially like with hormones. And when you have less sleep, your cortisol is higher and all that. Like it's just anything I think you could think of for health in the body, like you were saying, is sleep is such a key component. Like any health risk factor increases dramatically with decreased sleep. Yeah, for sure. Um, yeah, okay, so to touch on the, the energy systems, like you are saying, uh, one of the biggest conceptions with, with energy systems is people think that they kind of act independently and you can gear shift from one to the other uh, and then only that one they're all always active. You know what I mean? Like your, your ATPCP, like that's happening. As soon as I like quickly move, I just used ATP, yeah. uh, you know, quickly. So those short about 10 seconds or less, uh, easiest method is just sprinting. And I mean like technically resistance training is doing that too. If you have like a one three rep max, it takes less than 10 seconds to do. Olympic weightlifting, that's an easy one. That's ATP right away. You know, what I mean? yeah. super explosive movements, jumping, throwing something, uh, sprinting. So we always have those in our training programs, usually early on, whether it's at the end of the warm up as part of the ramp protocol, or if it's a movement in our A series to start off the exercise. Sometimes we can contrast it, but yeah, there's always something explosive. Um, your anaerobic glycolysis. That's a great example. It's like our hockey players. Typically, a shift is like 39 seconds. Um, so being able to do high intensity bouts for 30 seconds is very important. So what we'll usually do with them is uh, when we would go outside in their training camp, we do 150 yard shuttles where they go 25 yards and back uh, three times. Um, and then we can change the distance from that. But it's basically like matching a hockey shift with some change of direction. And that almost nails the energy system that they need to use while they're on ice directly translates over. The, the thing that I run the guy through in the summer for hockey and the, and the girls too, they, uh, they feel it right away and they feel the payoff almost right away as well. You just need to be able to do that. Um, and then your, your oxidative system, uh, you know, I, I don't, I won't necessarily dive into the, the technology too much because I think probably people that are better explaining it in detail than I, but simple aspect, like, you know, your, your bouts of minutes to hours, just being able to do sustained low intensity, low to moderate intensity exercise for a long period of time. Like a long um, run. Yeah. It, it can even just be like, you know, one, one to three minute intervals where you do like one, two or three minutes at a sustained pace. And then you do, you know, a rest period of something. So like, for example, with, um, 
our soccer teams, certain times of the year, we'll do one minute on where they're, they're working at a high intensity, not max intensity like a hockey player might be asked to, but like a higher, higher pace, and then two minutes of continuous jogging at a certain pace. So it's still all aerobic, but we're kind of slightly gear shifting with the new aerobic system um, just to kind of match their actual on-field demands a little bit. It's not perfect, but I mean, it, at least we can train that pretty objectively. Um, and then sometimes we might throw in a random sprint where they have to like do two minutes of moderate intensity pace and then, you know, sprint and then one minute recover and then do it again. Yeah. And, um, yeah, because you said they're not like independent systems. You're, you're going to be, there's some overlap with them. Like yeah. first 10 seconds you're using, uh, like phosphocreatine, like ATP system. It's a, immediately available. You said like Olympic lifting, I think is a really good example of almost well purely that one essentially like for what's being accomplished is using that system it's it's a one rep they're doing it within 10 seconds but say you're doing a set of bench press for 20 reps the eventually the anaerobic glycolysis it's gonna take over if you're doing it for 30 seconds like exactly there's a there's an overlap period where maybe both are going and then once you once you run out of once the phosphocreatine can't, you know, after 10, 30 seconds, it stops. Yeah. One takes over and then eventually the, the next one's going to take over, especially uh, like a run. I guess if you started off a run sprinting, the sprinting aspect is going to be phosphocreatine. And then, you know, maybe you do 400 meters, you're using a lot of uh, anaerobic glycolysis. But then if you're doing a marathon, those yeah. things are going to stop being effective. You're going to be using anaerobic, an anaerobic system because you're running for a few hours. Yeah. The, yeah. Aerobic. Um, yeah. And even then like you're sprinting and then you go for a job, like your creatine phosphate will replenish to a certain extent, depending on how much time you're spending sprinting. So that's why like soccer, you see them run a lot, but then you also see them sprint a lot. They're recovering when they're not doing they're yeah. recovering from sprinting. So that's how you see that kind of play out. Yeah. I think that's a good, you know, we can maybe briefly just touch on creatine in general and how that I recently um, got back on creatine. Just like, why wouldn't I, you know, I mean, I don't, I'm not a non-responder. There's, we can get into maybe some, some people are non-responders, but in general, how creatine, you know, how is that working? How is that making, you know, people's performance better it's influencing the phosphocreatine system it's making phosphocreatine more available therefore yeah. it can produce your body can produce atp more quickly and efficiently right yeah yeah i mean people take it when they want to have more energy to do a little bit more work um like i found that my time doing it didn't help me as much as other people that were using it so I stopped using it. I felt like a non-responder. I think the most I ever felt uh, like high, high sort of like lots of speed and improvement in my training was when I wasn't using any supplements, but that's probably just my own physiology. Um, but yeah, creatine, like some people, if you feel like you need that extra boost, I'm not a dietitian, so I wouldn't prescribe it for anybody. I wouldn't recommend it to anybody. I would tell them what I I can tell them what I think about it, but typically I leave that to the dietitian that I work with to sort of figure out if anyone needs to use it. For sure, yeah. 
I think interestingly too, like they're it's more preliminary, I guess, but it's showing promise as like a nootropic as well. Um, give you more, you know, improve working memory and attention and focus because it is providing more ATP, like reducing fatigue. Like, and I, I don't know if it's just, you know, whatever, but I, I just, I started taking it a couple of weeks ago and I think I definitely feel more like less fatiguing. Like, I feel like I can go longer without it's not like crazy. It's not like I'm talking about a limitless pill. Anyone listening, like you might not even notice it less. You kind of like take note of, you know, how did you feel before? It might be the most subtle change, but just being able to sit down longer and like not have that feeling of, Oh, this sucks. Like I want to stop studying. I kind of have noticed could be a placebo. <laughs> It's well, it's important to think it's as you're saying that like the last few weeks, most people have been sitting at home, not doing what they do in their daily life. Yeah. Which means that without even thinking about it, most people are getting more sleep or more quality from their sleep. Yeah. So I think a lot of benefits and improvements that people are seeing recent weeks is from actually recovering for the first time in their lives. (laughs) True. Along with, a maybe more uh, complicated equation though, because along with the cabin fever and the, you know, the, the cooped up, like I, my freedom's gone type of thing. Like maybe they don't notice it, but like, I, I agree with what you're saying. Like they've probably been getting more sleep if they're not drinking a bunch of alcohol. I know, you know, yeah. a lot of people are like, Oh, nothing to do. I may as well have, I saw a funny, I saw like a meme. It was like alcoholic and, Alcoholics Anonymous in 2021, and it was like a stadium full of people. (laughs) Someone sent it in my family group chat. I'm like, well, probably going to be everyone but me because I've actually been enjoying, like, I do it more socially. Like, if, you know, my friends are going out, I like to go out, like, with them. But if I'm just hanging out by myself, I'm, I almost, I find it, you know, if it's, it feels good not having any reason to do it. Like I can, I can really focus on just recovery, getting good sleep, letting my body kind of take this time to improve rather than, you know, come out on the other side with shittier health. I think it's a good, mm-hmm. it's a really good opportunity for a lot of people to just take advantage of. You have a lot of time and a lot of this does kind of suck, but you can also improve yourself a bunch cause you don't have much else to do. So yeah. I think, a good message is take care of yourselves and like, you know, take advantage of this, whatever that is. Even if you don't have a gym, you know, start getting a body weight routine in and get your eight to 10 hours of sleep. Something is always better than nothing. Yeah. I think you can either come out of this on top, you can view it as an opportunity or you can view it as, you know, a really shitty thing, which there's no doubt. It's not ideal. It's pretty horrible. Like, what's happening with the economy and Mm -hmm. people, people's health and stuff. But for you, take it as an opportunity, use it to do something good. Don't just, you know, dwell on how bad it is all the time. That's only, that's not going to do you any good Pass doing what you can social distance, do your part and then work on you. You know, it's, it's a really good time to do that. So anyways, that's my two cents about quarantine and self-improvement. Yeah. 
Um, I think we got through a lot of good topics there. Actually, uh, one more before I have a little an ending thing for you. Um, like the different types of muscle fibers, which kind of coincide with energy systems. Um, but like, I just want to touch on strength training and like, I'm just in general, what a motor unit is and like training one system eventually, I think we touched this in a session, a weekly session, but say you're, you're developing a lot of like type two X or type two B like fast, um, glycolic muscle fibers and the type one fibers aren't being used at all. What will, isn't it correct that a, a new motor unit can innervate those other fibers and make them a type two fiber? No, no. no it's not. So in, in humans, in all human studies that have done it, in instances where they've been able to artificially change a fiber type by inject, like imposing a specific neural tone to that fiber. But as soon as you remove the, the artificial tone or signal to it, it reverts back to the fiber that it originally was. So okay, you're so born with a certain. Okay, yeah, so what it is, is you're developing that motor system more to be more efficient and maybe you're, you're increasing the overall size of the muscle fibers you're using, but you're not going to type one fibers are going to always be type one fibers. Um, so basically you're born with the proportion of fibers that you have. So if I'm born with 70% of type two fibers in my quads, then that's what I'm born with. Some people might have more, some people have less. Um, now when you are training, the important thing to know difference between fibers is you are not not developing the other one if you're not directly trying to influence it. So type 1 fibers, although they're seen as, it seems like people typically see them as like lesser than type 2 when it comes to sport performance, they're not. You have a ton of type 1 fibers that are actually quite strong. You know what I mean? Like, um, I think the ideal population to look at is like military soldiers. They have to do a lot of aerobic work and a lot of strength work and all together and sprint. You know what I mean? It's like the sort of like the tactical athlete has been like a trend. Sorry. I'm sorry. Thank you. Sorry about that. Um, yeah, so um, you're using all the fibers. So like if you do a squat set in your, say you do like set of 10, your first few reps, you probably have a lot of influence in your type two fibers. And then as they fatigue or diminish the response, your type one fibers are still hanging on, taking over. But then that's when you kind of like, you know, you start to feel tired because they can't, they can do activity for a long time, but they can't do a high, high output for a long time. Or, or uh, yeah, high output, the same as type two fiber. So um, when you're sort of going about your daily life, like even just sitting and moving and like doing stuff is typically type one and your body is trying to be efficient. So when you start doing movements and exercises, this kind of ties into why we do warm up. your type one fibers are selected first to do or perform. And also because you don't, if you were in daily life and you just, you were using type two fibers that wouldn't make as much sense. You don't want like super fast, like, you know, exactly. you want to be able to, you know, 
you want to be elegantly moved and not <laughs> graceful. Yeah. So, um, and then also in terms of getting stronger, like it's about getting a lot of it's about getting your nervous system more efficient at firing the motor units at the same time. Correct. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's why like you can, you don't necessarily need to be gigantic to be strong. Yeah. Right. Like obviously having more muscle is more ideal for expressing more strength, but you can, you can express a lot of strength while not also being gigantic. That's why there's that guy out there. I forget his name is, but he can like fold cast iron pans. Looks like an unassuming average size dude. Yeah. But he can just crank through pans like it's nothing because he's got such a high, high control of his, his type two output that he can just yeah. do whatever he wants. <laughs> and the amount that like the amount of access your your body or your, your you know your brain stem or your lower level functioning as in consciousness, not as in, you know, lower level, but is allowing you to have access to, I think we touched on this in a session is your body doesn't want you to be able to do a hundred percent of what you, I think you use the analogy, like when, uh, if you could use all your muscle fibers, like when someone, if someone gets electrocuted and they shoot back cause they, their muscle fibers have, um, tensed or contracted so quickly that you know, throws them back. If you did that, if you could do that all the time, you know, you, it's not good for your joints. Like it could cause some serious damage. So your body doesn't want you to use a hundred percent of what your muscles are capable of doing. Like you gotta, you have to train yourself to be more efficient. I think it was Eddie Hall's world record deadlift. He was working with like psychotherapists and stuff to get his mindset in a place where he could produce yeah. enough like adrenaline and create a mental state where his body would want to perform at that very top capacity, like accessing, you know, maybe not hundred percent of his, his actual uh, ability pr to produce power, but you know, maybe 70 to 90%. Yeah. No, uh, I don't remember. I, I feel like you maybe explained a few different analogies I've used all together in one for, <laughs> for things. Um, I don't want to put words in your mouth. <laughs> but uh, no, like your, your body's designed. So if I throw my hand forward, muscles are going to contract oppositely to slow my hand down. Yeah. Because if I was just able to fire and not slow down, then I would just throw my arm out of the socket. Yeah. <laughs> But there, you know what I mean. Muscles are always contracting in opposition to stabilize and, and sort of maintain your body position. Uh, but that's pretty much that. Like, yeah, I don't know. Trying to maximally use your, your motor units and your neurons just comes from from time, practice, and intent. That's why the strongest or most explosive people in the world are not in their teens or early twenties. They're usually in their late twenties to thirties, sometimes in their early forties. Like your your sprinter peak career is between like twenty eight and thirty two. Your strongman peak is between 35 and 45. You know what I mean? Like it takes yeah. time to develop these things. Um, um, I don't know if there's actually, there's always like the people throw this around a lot in terms of, you know, uh, an example to use. I don't know. If, it's like the, the mother lifting a car off of her, her baby. Mm. You hear it a lot. I don't know 
there's any actually documented cases of it, but oh, yeah. analogy is good to use in terms of if you really need to use your strength, there's a lot more there than just going in the gym and doing it. There's, there's a practical examples. Like I remember I used to work at a sailing camp or a school and teach sailing. And one of the kids got stuck under a boat while it was on, like on land, it was dry dock. And I remember I was a teenager. I fucking threw that boat off the kid because my adrenaline was just like, this kid's going to die if he gets crushed into this boat any further. And then it's like, yeah. well, what the hell just happened? Like it went from zero to hundred percent right away. And that's, that's our true primal like response. We can use everything, but our, and there's a really good podcast. I listened to a few months ago. So I don't even remember the name about it. They were talking about like, you know, think about like a bear or a tiger. They're not going to, there's no mental check in their brain. That's like, you know what? Maybe I'm only going to bite you 50% as hard. <laughs> when they catch a gazelle or a deer or whatever they're not like i'm gonna kind of bite you like i'm gonna fucking kill you yeah they're going 100 percent to do what they're trying to do humans we have that whole mental aspect that can almost act like a crutch or a training wheel or a boot on a car wheel like it's our mind can get in the way of the things that our body can or wants to perform even so just ways to get around that and subconsciously a lot of the time too not even being like oh i don't want because a lot of times people are like i want to lift this or you know i want to do this but in my in the physiology course i just finished at dow um in the skeletal muscle part we talked about fatigue like absolute fatigue where your muscle can no longer have like fused tetanus like it can't contract and it stops because there's no more calcium to bind there's no more atp to to let mm -hmm. the cross bridge cycling occur and then we look at a lot of the time it's central nervous system stopping and even just your body yeah. stopping you from doing this because you know if you don't need to do it then why are you wasting the energy on doing it whereas maybe exactly. in the case where there's you know like when that kid was stuck under the boat your your brain or your subconscious allowed you because it was needed to happen whereas in the gym exactly. a lot of the time there's actually no need for it. So that exactly. I, I think you could also develop your mindset a bit more. If you like people get in like the zone or they get in a state, like some people get super fired up. Like I am not a fan of this technique, but like they get people to slap their back and stuff. I take more of like a maybe chill, get in my own zone approach. Whereas I don't want to get slapped mm -hmm. on the back, <laughs> but for some sure. people it, it can get them in that, you know in that mindset sweet i think that, that was good we did a we did a long one this is my first long podcast um i got some ending rapid fire questions for you so just okay. first thing that comes to mind couple word answer maybe a small sentence and i'll just go to the next one there's about six or okay. so okay i just do these at the end of every episode um so what recommendation would you give people to improve themselves? If you had to do one thing that someone could simply sort of implement to just improve overall, what would you say? Sleep. Sleep. Good. Um, what's one book you would suggest for everyone to read? Um, hmm. I'm going to pick an old one. 1984. The book's 1984. Okay. Yeah. Um, 
what's one thing you would tell people that for lasting happiness, obviously it won't happen, but like one thing in general that might improve their, their state. Um, other than sleep. <laughs> Uh, I'd probably say just like go for what you want. Like if you want to do something, go do it directly. Yeah, good. People like be yourself. Like when they do what what's you're being called to do, kind of like do do what's yeah, you. But I, and I, like if you truly want to do it, you'll you'll have success doing it. I think that that perception or the perception of like you'll never be successful at the thing that makes you happy, or you won't find like financial whatever. There's definitely some things, but like typically if you really truly want to do it and you're keen enough to make a living out of it, you'll make a living out of it. So just go do it. For sure. Um, so, and if you could be remembered for one thing a thousand years from now, what would it be? <clears throat> um, honestly, probably just family. Like I hope, you know, through their families left like i have enough family history and knowledge of the family history going back 400 years so i'm hoping i'm remembered 400 years at least from now if it's a thousand years great um and sorry you cut out at the like, very beginning what was it just in general to be remembered or like in family oh okay um, that's enough for me sweet if you could live forever would you why or why not Absolutely worth it. Um, totally. You can get so much more done because now I'm, I'm going to make some assumptions here that you can still die from someone killing you. No. <laughs> no, you can't? No, you're, you're living forever. Um, yeah, no, I'd probably still do it. Damn. Just because there's so many different lives you could experience or, or try out. That's almost... That's, Almost exactly what my guest yesterday said. He's mm -hmm. like, yeah, for sure I would. I'd, I'd live every life you could live. I would live this life as, you know, a firefighter. I'd live this life as a, just experience everything. I'll give my two cents, even though I'm not supposed to right now. This, I'm just going to go off <laughs> script here. I wouldn't. And the reason why is I think the whole thing that gives life meaning and that actually motivates us to do things is that it's, it's finite. It's not, you know, you know, it's short, you know, that you only have so much time. And that's really, I think a big factor in actually fully living life. Whereas if you live forever, then what is, I feel like it'd be a curse, you know, like all the mood, like, I think, I think it could be, but I think, you know, the fact that you're going to die someday it's kind of like we were talking about before people know it's going to happen but don't understand that it's going to happen yeah so like are we truly living our lives to the fullest because we know we're going to die one day and the answer is most people don't a lot of people, people now yeah. go about their days most people go about what's currently going to help them survive not what's going to you know give you your best possible life before you die so i think if i was able to never die then i could just focus on everything else other than trying to survive because inherently we're all just trying to survive we're trying not to make money to survive we're trying to go to the grocery store like <laughs> if you could remove that layer i think that would be ideal. <laughs> <laughs> all right fair enough um 
if one daily habit everyone should start doing in your opinion um i would say write or read nice and lastly what's one thing you wish you knew 10 years ago <laughs> um Hmm. Probably to be a little more relaxed, realizing that like, you know, so many people get stressed over the things that could happen or, or might happen when, and that it paralyzes people from just doing things. I think going back, if I could just like, realize that no matter what I'm doing, there's always going to be some way to change course or do something else. I think it's, it's entrenched in a lot of people that like whatever you commit to, that's what you have to do and that's it. When really like school and do a degree and then change your mind and do something else. And the degree is still valid. Nobody asks you your GPA once you're out of your undergrad. Yeah. Nobody. So all they care about is are you a good person? Do you have good practical skills? Can you problem solve? Are you on time? Like basic employable human things. So, like, I think just being a little more relaxed about the future. Good, yeah, fair enough. And, like, not taking shit too seriously. Like, yeah. Yeah, yeah unless like it's go. one thing I, I ask myself sometimes I'm like, if I'm really getting worked up about something or something seems like a big deal, I'm like, okay, in one year from now, will this matter? Or even like an easier one to do is, will this matter next week? And if the yeah. answer is no, it won't matter next week or even next year, then I'm like, all right, not that big of a deal, clearly. If it doesn't matter next week, yeah. then it's not a big deal. Exactly. So, and that, that perspective works practically for people too, like in a, in a work or school setting. If you like receive an e or a grade or an assignment that didn't go well, well, the big picture, is it really going to ruin your life or are you going to learn from it? Yeah. So I like um I've been recently rewatching the Star Wars movies and you know, Yoda's big thing is like failure is the best teacher. And that's like age old myth stuff, fables and whatever, but like very modern example of that telling is like, yeah, when you fuck up, you learn the most you possibly can. And if you don't die, it's not the end of the world. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for sure. Yeah, most of your stuff comes from realizing what you did wrong. To, yeah, know. exactly. Sweet. Um, do you have anything, like, just you want to tell people where they can find you or your Instagram or anything, strength and conditioning stuff? Um, yeah, I mean, so there's the there's the strength and conditioning one, which is new, SMU underscore strength. That's probably the easiest one to find our stuff. And then my personal one is E underscore a underscore richard i think <laughs> yeah yeah you can just um, you can you send, send it all to me and i'll put it in the show notes and people yeah, can perfect click it excellent all right well thanks for coming on for having me it was uh it's my first official podcast as a guest so this is this was awesome it went well too perfect yeah i appreciate it Thanks everyone who listened to the whole episode today. It was a bit longer, just over two hours. So I hope you found some of that information useful or at least uh, uh, entertaining to listen to. So thanks a lot and I'll catch you next time.
Thank mm-hmm. you.